Let's seek the Lord's aid as we come to the Word. Father, we praise You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for the songs that we have sung. Indeed, in these songs we have sung the sermon that is before us today, the text that we consider. Whatever You ordain is right, we wait for You. We behold Your glory. We know that You reign sovereignly over our lives. And Lord, we acknowledge before You our waywardness of heart, the fact that often we think that we know better than You, that often we despair of the hope that You proclaim to us in Your Word. Father, teach us. May we, under the Word today and by the teaching of the Spirit of God, grow in faith, hope, and love. I pray that through the ministry of the Spirit we will understand this text and that we will be changed and sanctified under this ministry. We pray for those who know not Christ and ask that you would continue to open eyes to the truth of the gospel and aid us here in our gathering together today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Is it well with your soul? Are you at peace? Are you honestly resting in God where you are in life? We live in a world that's characterized by discontented restlessness. Agitated souls flit about in frenetic pursuit of some more money, a better education, a different marriage, a better job, nicer home, a fitter body, new friends. Many strive for a better lot in life, often accompanied by attempts at self-reinvention. Well, as believers in Christ, we do not commend ambitionless mediocrity or unimaginative, lethargic self-satisfaction. But think of it, believers. We've gathered today and as we've sung these songs of hope and considered the Word, united by faith to Christ, adopted by the Father as His Son, liberated from bondage to sin, our names written in heaven, heirs of God's eternal kingdom, we should be the most content people on earth. But are we? Are we? Think hard about your lot in life right now. Your circumstances, your situation. As it stands, not as you hope it will become, but as it is right now, are you at peace? Are you resting in that very place, that station, that present condition? The Apostle Paul famously said to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That contentment flowed from the Gospel. It's found nowhere else, but it flows from the Gospel. It emanated from the life-changing implications of Christ's death and resurrection for the salvation of His people. In that message, there is contentment come what may. We sung of it here earlier this morning. Whatever my God ordains is right. In that we sang the message here. 
Our participation in that salvation plan is designed to transform every aspect of our lives and thus putting our souls at rest right where we are. Well, the members of the Corinthian church were really struggling with that. In ways that we don't struggle, with situations that we don't face ourselves, but uh, in a misguided quest for a higher experience of spirituality, some were agitated thinking that they should change their station, change their lot in life, do something to make it different than what it is. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But given their context, given their philosophical foundations and culture, it made sense to some of them that what they should do is change their marriage by practicing celibacy in marriage. Others believe they should divorce their unsaved mates to gain a pure standing before God. Others felt they should break off engagements. And others that getting married would gain for them some spiritual advantage. In verses 17-24, through 24, Paul addresses this agitation of soul and he says essentially to the Corinthians, people, relax. Just relax. Rest at peace where you are. Clearly, our concerns are very different than theirs. But taking Paul's counsel to heart, his fundamental message to the Corinthian church applies equally to us today. And so in verses 17-24, to they reveal Paul's rationale in this what is sometimes a confusing chapter. There's a pretty significant gap between them and us and what concerned them and what concerns us. But as we look at the, the basic foundations of this chapter, they're found here in this brief section. Notice this. In verse 17, and perhaps if you were reading ahead this week and thinking and meditating on this passage, this this stood out to you. But notice there in verse 17, he says, "...only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him." Verse 20, "...each one should remain in the condition in which he was called." Verse 24, Whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul's not being too hard to figure out here, is he? Three times in these few verses, he makes this very same point. Rest in place. Do not be marked by the agitation that says, I've got to be in a different spot in life. To please God, to find some spiritual experience, to do better than where I'm at. So the standard rule we find here in verse 17, who articulates that at the beginning and at the end. But verse 17, here's his standard rule. Only let each person lead the life, walk in the path that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now that word only, we can just kind of miss, cover over, move on. But it really helps us understand the flow of thought here. Only... We, we need to switch this word, uh, stitch this word rather, to its context. So Paul gives his counsel to believers married to unbelievers in verse 12. And what does he say? Stay with them. Do not divorce. Stay married. When Jesus rescues a soul 
from sin and hell, that transformed soul renders the marriage pure in God's eyes. So stay married. Don't divorce that unsaved mate. Rest in place. But in verse 15, he gives an exception to the rule. What's that exception? Verse 15, but if the unbeliever, believing partner separates, that word means divorce, let it be so. So there's an exception. Now after working through that, section, that exception, he comes now to verse 17 and says only. Or a, maybe a better way of understanding it is nevertheless. So it's in light of that exception that he says nevertheless and comes back now to these three references to stay in place, to be at rest where you are. So sometimes there will be exceptions to, the, to this rule. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. To which God has called him. That The life assigned refers to one's station in life. To which God has called him. It maybe a bit over-interprets the Greek text which simply reads, each one as God has called. And I think the idea is rather to take this reference to the effectual call of God that opens the eyes and stimulates the ears and penetrates the heart of the unbeliever to receive the Gospel as the good news of salvation in Christ. So applying that backwards then, what Paul is saying is, in like for instance, verse 8 of chapter 7. Verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Stay single. That's fine. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. Stay married. Stay where you are. Rest in peace in the condition where you were when God saved you. His salvation is complete. You don't need to add to it by changing your lot in life. Now, sometimes you will. Sometimes it's right to do so. There are exceptions to the rule, but here's the rule. Stay in place. Be at peace and rest in the place where you are and where God found you when He brought you to see the Gospel. Now, notice the next phrase in verse 17. He says, this is my rule in all the churches. The Corinthian church was awfully impressed with themselves. They saw themselves as a, some level of heightened spirituality, and this was really a good word for them to remember that they are just part of the larger church of Christ and needed to, in some ways, dovetail their practice with all the churches that Christ had rescued for His name. It was good for them to hear that they were not on an island themselves. And Paul clearly makes a point of this to this particular church. where We see this in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 17. That is why I sent you to Timothy. That is why I sent you, Timothy, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul, uh, Timothy's going to remind the church what Paul had said, and this is what's said in all the churches. Chapter 11, he brings it up again. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Speaking here particularly of the role of women and the place of women in the church, he said this is the, the pattern in all the churches. And again in chapter 14, verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints. And he goes on again to give instruction concerning women in the church. So this is the general rule. This is the general 
way of counsel. We must grasp then that here we have this general rule, and it's not a universal command. Verse 15 makes this clear again. But if the unbeliever separates, let it be so. So the, the general rule is stay in place, rest at ease in the condition that you're at. There will be some exceptions along the way. Now, and then in verses 18 through 20, uh, for 23, he'll have two situations, the first in verses 18 through 20, that apply this rule. So we have the standard rule, verse 17, and now the application to two life situations. The first life situation is circumcision. Verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call, that is, anyone at the time that he trusted Christ as Savior, was anyone at that time already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Surgical reversal of circumcision was a thing in that day. There were Jewish men in that context who would want to hide their identity. The identity where their their parents had circumcised them as, as infant boys and that identified them with the covenant people. And so particularly with the cultural situation of public baths, where men would bathe with men in a large uh, bath that was heated and provided by the Roman Empire, they would be seen as a Jewish man very clearly to everyone. And so there, was, there were surgeries to redo that, and we won't go any further into this. Let's get off of it. But at any rate, that was a thing. It's not, he's not just making this up. That was actually something that was done. If, however, you were saved as a Gentile, don't seek circumcision. There is no reason for you to think that in some way, by doing that, you identify with the God of the covenant in some unique way. You have been rescued by Christ under a new covenant. Don't do that. Don't try to change your situation that way. 4, verse 19, here's his explanation of why he's giving that counsel. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Obviously, circumcision meant something. It was a sign that one belonged to the covenant people. But under the new covenant, circumcision has no value in drawing one closer to Christ. So circumcision. Don't run from it. Don't reverse it. Don't pursue it. Rest in place. What matters is what? Verse 19, that you keep God's commandments. The product of true doctrine is always godly living. Now, true doctrine doesn't always lead to godly living. But it should. It's meant to. That's what true doctrine does. Paul's not suggesting that obedience to God can earn us salvation. He's not suggesting that obedience to God will keep us saved. Only God can save us. Only God can keep us in the faith, ultimately. But obeying God is the new life orientation of genuine believers. It is the life to which we are called and we rejoice to be called to that life. We know that God's law is good. We desire to follow His counsel. We do not always do so. We must repent. But 
we want to. When Christ saves a soul, He saves it to purify that soul to be zealous for good works. Not once we enter eternity, but now. Not necessarily quickly and overnight, but persistently, patiently, through time, a genuine believer longs to align life with the counsel of God. That's what matters, Paul says. Don't mess around with circumcision. It's there, leave it there. If it's not there, don't pursue it. Obey God. Live a life in obedience to Him. Verse 19. Then again, the repetition of this principle. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. When you were called to salvation in Christ, where were you? The Gentile? Be a Gentile. If you bear the marks of being an Israelite, be at peace with it. And that would go back in the context as well. A widow, remain a widow. Unmarried, remain unmarried. Married to an unbeliever, remain married. That type of idea. Again, there's reasons to change that. It's not a law that you can't get out of this box. But it's rest where you are. So he takes the issue of circumcision as an example, and then he takes the issue of servitude as an example. Verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Were you a bondservant when you came to trust Christ as Savior? Do not be concerned about it. Don't let that eat you up. Don't be agitated about that. Rest in place. Be at peace as a servant. He'll explain the reason below, but he pauses here to make an important point in verse 21b, that parenthetical statement in the ESV, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So if, if you were saved while you were a slave, be at peace. It's okay. Rest. But if you can gain your freedom, do so. So here again is a rule be at peace where you are, and an exception. This exception we've seen through the passage. If we could put it all together and have a five-hour sermon, we'd get this a lot better. Well, we'd all be asleep, but uh, we'd get it better if we could put it all together. But let's remember verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That's the rule. What's the exception? Verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. There's a rule with the occasional exception. Chapter 7, verse 10. To the married I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. She should not divorce her husband. That's the general rule. There is an exception. Verse 11. But if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. But if she does, this is the rule. This is what should be, but this will happen. Verse 12, To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. There's the rule. What's the exception? Verse 15, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So there's a, there's a consistent pattern through the text. Here's the general rule. Be at peace where you are. 
but there are these exceptions. Rest in your position as a slave. But if you're able to gain your freedom, do so. Marriage is God's gift to creatures made in His image and is not to be broken. But by contrast, slavery is a twisted and often wicked violation of God's mandate to work. And it should go away. So the Bible acknowledges the reality of slavery. It gives counsel on how to operate in a system in which over half the inhabitants of a city such as Corinth found themselves at one time or the other. But that said, God counsels slaves to seek freedom when they are able. Now, putting ourselves in that setting again is important. We cannot put the Corinthians in 1843 America, in the South. That doesn't work. That's not what slavery was to them. Slavery in the ancient world was distinct from the kind of slavery practiced in our nation. Race played no part in who was a slave, and there was a much wider range of appropriate work. So yes, there was cruel enslavement, where there were captured people captured in war or kidnapped and forced into slavery that took place and the ill treatment was tremendous but in corinth a third of the people were in what was referred to as slavery which is much similar to employment in a factory or something of the like in our day beyond that one third of the population of corinth it's estimated used to be slaves and had gained their freedom. So slavery was a means of gaining freedom. Slavery was often, in, in America, was you, we don't want our slaves to learn anything. Don't, don't let them read. But in the ancient world, it was encouraged. To have a slave that read, that was educated, was, was a positive thing. Many people sold themselves into slavery and worked that off. It was an economic means of gaining freedom. And it was also the case that many slaves had a very high standing in the culture. There were slaves that were doctors and teachers and tutors and advisors and property managers of great um, villas. So we can't put this upon the New Testament. You, you hear this, don't you, from critics from time to time. The New Testament teaches slavery. No, it doesn't. It's talking about a culture where slavery was so much part of the economic fabric, there, there would be no way to end it apart from destroying culture. And no New Testament author was ever encouraging that. But all of that aside then, as we think about his counsel to slaves, he's saying it's alright for you to remain where you are. And where we hear that criticism of Scripture encouraging slavery, let's remember verse 22, this cuts the ground out from underneath the whole concept of slavery. Verse 22, For he who has call, is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord, Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You see the leveling effect there. He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. 
So you're a slave, you hear the gospel, you respond in saving faith, you've just become Christ's freedman. By his death in the place of sinners, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus purchased from the slave market of sin all who put their trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. Someone may view you as a slave, says Paul. Christ sees you as one who is free indeed. So no matter one's external condition, those who trust Christ are liberated from sin, from its penalty and its power to control. You are free in Christ. So great is this liberation, it overwhelms and transforms one's position as a slave. You don't think of your slavery in the same way ever again because you're free in Christ. But what's true of the free person? You see this latter part of verse 22. Likewise, he who was free when called, when trusting the Gospel, is a bondservant of Christ. So no one is more free than the soul that is enslaved to Christ. The uninhibited exercise of my personal independence is not true freedom. True freedom comes from the Master that you serve. Every master outside of Christ will enslave you and will destroy your life eventually. But the bondservants of Christ are truly free. So if you're a slave, he says, Christ has liberated you. That's what matters. Don't worry about your position. If you're free when you receive the Gospel, you become His slave. Rejoice in your position. Don't boast in your wealth. Don't boast in your power. Boast in the fact that you're the slave of Christ. The Gospel levels the ground at the foot of the cross, and this verse cuts the ground out from underneath slavery. It was a situation, an institution in that day that was simply part and parcel of every fiber of the empire. But in Christ, everything is different. And so verse 23, you were bought with a price. That's what we must know as the followers of Christ. We've been purchased out of the marketplace of sin. You were bought with a price, so do not become bondservants of men. I think he's probably talking there figuratively. He's certainly talking there uh, literally. Because anyone could make themselves a slave for economic reasons at pretty much any time. You get somebody to accept you into that relationship. He might be saying that. Don't go there. You're free in Christ. It makes no sense for you to be the slave of anyone. But I think he probably speaks here more figuratively. Do not become bondservants of men. Don't follow those who say, divorce your unbelieving mate and you'll be closer to God. Don't follow those who say that you must deliver yourself from slavery or that you must be married or divorced or not married or whatever it is. Don't be in slavery to anybody's opinion. Rest in place. Be at peace where you are. Do not let your station in life change because someone pushes you to do so bloom where you're planted is the proverb that we use isn't it 
So, verse 24, he comes back to a repetition of the standard rule. So, brothers, in whatever condition each has, was called, there let him remain with God. With God. That changes everything. With God. His fellowship with our ever-present Lord. So wherever you find yourself, you're with God as a believer. If we truly walk this life as the children of God, those whose every breath is taken in the presence of the Lord, then we can live contentedly in every situation that God ordains for us. One's social status is irrelevant in this dying world. Verse 31. When we are inheritors of eternity with Christ, our social status is irrelevant. Now, this is not to turn us into lazy people that have no ambition, as I said at the beginning. But as we bridge to our own day, we return to this question that seems to demand that we answer from this text. Is it well with your soul? Are you resting in God where you are in life right now? We do not face the same concerns that the Corinthians face, but the counsel we find in these verses presses us to analyze the contentment that we have in relationship with the Lord right where we are right now today. And, and, and I understand there's a, there's a level where we're not at peace. And that's a good thing. Our ultimate rest will come in eternity. So there's a, there's a longing in the soul for that rest and that security and that place that we're not there yet. But having said that, we come around back to this council, and it is this, that we should be at peace now in the presence of the Lord with qualification about eternity. So let's think of it, taking that principle and applying it to our life. Teenagers, you who are teens in our congregation, are you at peace in your parents' home? Are you content to remain under their authority? Or are you in great consternation thinking life cannot start until you are free from their authority and their watch care? I think this passage has something to say to you. I think the Apostle Paul would talk to you and say, rest in place. Be patient, teenager. Don't run away, literally or figuratively. Walking with God and obeying Him will put your soul at rest where you are right now. Take a deep breath, relax. You're all right. This too shall pass, we might say. But press on. So if we had, imagine that we had a junior in high school in the neighborhood who starts to come to church and comes to the place where this junior trusts Christ as Savior and lives in a pretty godless home and says, you know, I'm really thinking of leaving my parents. I can do so legally I can apply for that and I can leave my parents and I, I'd like you to place me with a Christian home where I, can see the, uh, where I can see the gospel demonstrated. How would we counsel them? I think in the light of this passage, we'd counsel that teen and say, no, stay where you are. Stay where you are. Now, there could be some exceptions that would say to us, you need to get out of there, right? That's the exception to the rule. But we would start with the standard rule is stay where you are. 
God has a reason for you to be in that home that's broken and godless, from which He has rescued you. But you're not going to change your status and find in that that you draw any closer to the Lord. Stay where you are. We'll counsel, we'll help, we'll be here. But there's no reason to leave your home. Single adults, those who would love to be married or would at least want to consider it, are you at peace in your singleness? Do you imagine your life can only thrive if you find a marriage partner? Do you imagine your position in Christ would improve if you were married? Rest. Don't allow an agitation of soul to take over and to say, nothing's right. I'm walking in despair and in desperation. I think in light of this passage, we're encouraged. Be at peace. God is good. He's good right now, right where you are. There's nothing wrong with seeking a mate. There is something wrong with thinking that will make your life any better than it is right now. Different, certainly, but not fundamentally better. And that's so much of what Paul's talking about and will in the rest of the chapter. You know Christ. You are liberated from sin's bondage. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice. It is God's gracious will for you to learn contentment in the circumstance of singleness. It's not that you've missed something. You've missed nothing eternally. Rest in place. Again, doesn't mean you don't pursue marriage. But it means that you are content now. Widows, what does it say to widows? Be at peace where you are. Widowhood can be more lonely than anyone understands. Widowhood can be more challenging than it seems possible to bear at times. But Paul would say, I think you're okay. Rest in God. Focus on living for Him. Don't fret about finding a mate. It's not wrong to, verse 8. If that's wise and there's good counsel that way and God leads that way, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. And verses 40 and following as well. But be at peace where you are. Don't be agitated. I've got to change my situation. As we considered last week, those married to unsaved spouses should also rest in their situation. Be at peace right there in that situation. It's right for a teenager to eventually leave the home. It's right for a single or widow to get married according to God's will. It is right for the maid of an unbeliever to let an unbelieving spouse walk away. It's right for a slave to seek freedom. What is not right is for us to think that that change of life circumstance is going to make us joyful people. Is going to somehow complete us and make us any more whole than we already are in Christ. And that's encouraging. It's meant to encourage. Only God can satisfy your soul. Only God. How can we be content in any and every circumstance? How can we rest in the place God has assigned for us? The only answer is to see the beauty of Christ's saving grace and to truly believe to the core of our being that Christ is preparing for us a home in heaven, that He is heading back to get us.
where I really see that and perceive that, then no matter the circumstance in life, I know I'm good. I'm okay. I can rest in place. Trusting God to bring about what He desires. Only when the circumstances of our salvation in Christ are seen for what they are can we keep the circumstances of our passing life in right perspective and in their proper place. So there is, for those who have not been called, in the sense that they've not seen the truth of the Gospel in fullness, you would say that I I don't have any sense that I'm identified with Christ. What an amazing possibility is here in this text. Christ liberates sinners from their bondage to sin. And if you look at your life and say, I'm fine as I am, I'm good as I am, I don't need any help, you remain blind to what Christ can do. But if you know in the conviction of your heart there is sin between you and God, there is judgment that you deserve because of breaking His law, there is an offer here of freedom of deliverance from the bondage to sin and of forgiveness because Christ pays the cost of our sin. That freedom is there. It's held out. Reach for it. For those who know Christ as Savior, we can certainly say this on the authority of these few verses. God loves you. He is orchestrating all things together for good in your life. Not most things together for good of most Christians. All things together for your good as His child. He's a good Father. He doesn't forget about you or drop things. Ever. He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. So you can rest in place as you trust Him as a believer. You can rest in Him right now where you are by His grace alone. How is it with your soul? Are you resting in where He has you? It says so much about who we know Him to be. Rest. Let's pray. Lord, I I know that for some, this hits with a different force And there are trials due to circumstances of life. There is upheaval and agitation in the soul that keeps them up at night, takes away rest, takes away joy, troubles in so many ways. But Father, I pray that You would bring comfort and strength to all who know You as Your child in that condition. I pray, Father, for those who do not know Christ as Savior, that they would find in You the rescue and the deliverance from the brokenness of this world and of their own hearts. God, we pray that You do a work in our lives and that we would honestly ask ourselves if we are content, content in the best and right way, not the way of lethargy and laziness, but the way of trusting You, being at peace with where You have us right now today is a call of faith. And I pray that that faith would be exercised and that you, by your grace, would minister your goodness, your sanctifying power in our lives as we consider what you've done for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.